But the idea is that in order for us to be able to expand the chains where, you know, natural affinity with Luna is less, then you need neutral reserves that can build user confidence um, in, in UST. And we felt like that asset was Bitcoin. Everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have Do Kwan, who is the most highly requested guest on Empire. So, uh, Do, my friend, welcome to Empire. Thanks for having me. Let's start just real, real quick. You know, you've got this saying decentralized economy needs decentralized money. There are a million things that you could go do in crypto and probably outside of crypto too. You've decided to kind of go after this, like the proverbial holy grail of crypto, right? Which is fixing the money. You've got these like three types of stables, right? You've got fiat, which I would say maybe US, USDC, like you mentioned, where there are a couple of different issues there, maybe like security of the issuer, regulatory risk. You've got these leverage-based stables, maybe DAI, I would bucket in here. And, and I've heard you talk about this as well. There's some scalability issues around this because of like limit, uh, uh, because of like leverage demand and things like that. And then you've got these algo stables, which historically have not actually worked. Um, because you've got the stability trade-off that le- could lead to a death spiral, and they've generally failed due to, due to this kind of like lack of demand and unsustainable APYs that usually attract this like mercenary capital. How does UST and the stablecoin that you guys are building differ from these the algos or the leverage-based stables or the or the fiat uh, the fiat back stables so far? Yeah, so. Uh, there are largely three main flavors of stablecoins. So the first is fiat backed, the second is leverage backed, and the third is algorithm backed. And all three of these have different, you know, stability profiles and um, and um, you know pros and cons. So with fiat backed stablecoins, they can be censored. So that's a major problem. So um, the underlying bank deposits could be seized, or you know, different types of rules and you know asset seizures could be enforced by whichever regulatory body feels like they have control over these centralized stablecoins. And if you look at the long history of fintech and financial technology, uh, it's always erred towards adding more regulation unless it was impossible to do so. So uh, over time, you know, compliance overhead and KYC, all of that starts to pile on. And I think that sort of defeats the entire purpose of using DeFi in the first place. If you have to submit like a bunch of on-chain paperwork to a centralized entity in order to get your transactions across. So I think it's going to lead to a subpar experience. And the entire point that there's so much centralization risk here defeats the entire purpose of DeFi and poses an existential risk to our entire industry. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, you know, we, we were super early in DeFi and it's always felt like crypto has been this industry of double standards, right? We, we, we preach decentralization, but most people, even Bitcoiners, hardcore Bitcoiners still use centralized exchanges. Um, and we take the short route to security, to, to decentralize. And, and, you know, a lot of DeFi is operated by regulated stable coins. And, you know, that is really the Achilles heel of the industry. When I, when I think of the success of, of, of Luna, I think it's been largely, and I tell this to most people is I think you took a very consumer centric approach from the very beginning. You said, let's build something that has underlying utility, not just speculation. Cause most algorithmic stable coins, this is what a time I'd invest in basis coin or base coin. 
And look, it's it's fascinating game theory, but it can it's fragile, especially at the very beginning. Whereas I think if you have the underlying bedrock of, of I think you guys were approaching it from, let's get Chai, this wallet, to be used by a lot of people in e-commerce. Sure, we'll have incentives for people to use this wallet versus Kakao or some other solutions out there. But if you have that underlying kind of bedrock, then there there is more stability in the long term. I, I, I would succinctly describe it as utility brings stability to a stable coin, especially an ambitious one that is meant to be decentralized. Much to my detriment, I actually passed on Terra because I had invested in base, in base coin and I felt that it was like, all right, like game theory is fascinating, but these things are very experimental, very risky. But here you are today, you know, to my understanding, you guys are widely used in Korea. Uh, you've expanded very regionally. I think you've gone to places like Thailand where the central bank has had objections to what you guys were doing and, and a lot of it in Asia. Maybe if you can just give us a quick rundown of over the years, because it's been what, I think you were starting in 2017, 2018, right? That's when you guys kind of launched. So can give us like a quick rundown of what has happened to where you are today, which is one of, if not kind of the most exciting decentralized stablecoin out there. But it took you, it wasn't a very linear, straightforward path to get there. So I'm curious if you could share with us kind of that trajectory, maybe in a nutshell, and then we can do, you know, go deeper. Well, I, I mean, so I think the interesting thing about Terra is that uh, I think the sort of the moderate success that we've had so far can largely be attributed to like us sort of relinquishing control over time. So um, if you think about like, if you go back to Terra in like 2018 and 2019, the entire thesis was payments, right? So um, the idea was that we would, you know, bootstrap a large network of merchants and users that are willing to transact using Terra. And then we would use that to, um, and that would sort of build a network of people that are willing to hold and transact using the currency. And we would be able to, you know, build, you know, store value applications and things like that on top. But um yeah, and I, I think we've had some reasonable success with that. So we've launched apps like Chai in Korea. So the idea was that we would close the retail loop with things that people can buy and transact with using, uh, you know, Terra payments. So you could take it to most e-commerce uh, merchants of your choice. I could go to movie theaters, convenience stores, and things like that. Um, and, you know, the, because it sort of natively hooks up to the Terra Station wallet as well, like you could, you know, live off of your staking rewards, for instance, which makes the Luna flywheel, that much more interesting. Um, and then if you don't want to do that, you could just top up using your bank account balance. And then in the background, the app will purchase uh, stable coins for you and then, um, you know, onboard you to the rails. But um, I, I, I guess the main problem with that type of approach is that uh, given, you know, we sort of had most of the control over the full stack experience. So we were building the blockchain, we were building smart contracts, well, uh, payment systems on top of it, and then we were building a payments company. That sort of was very difficult to build an entire ecosystem around it. So with only one innovator on top of the Terra blockchain, uh, it was relatively hard to compete against other ecosystems that had you know hundreds, if not thousands, of developers. And um, I think at some point we sort of learned that lesson, and then sort of um, went uh, went into a more uh, ecosystem building approach where we spun out Chai into a separate entity. And then we spent a lot of time thinking about like, what, how do you, how would you make Terra stablecoins itself really useful instead of trying to build a company that happens to use Terra, Terra stablecoins. And then the rest is history. Would you say that the focus today is more on the ecosystem and inviting developers 
I mean, the Cosmos SDK is kind of, you know, there's a lot of developers out there building. So it's, it's fairly easy for someone to come into our ecosystem and just build whatever application they want. And to date, you've seen a, a host of projects, some of which I'm an investor in, you know, like Anchor, for instance, which is savings, more savings centric, and then Mirror, which allows you to invest in kind of, you know, stocks. Um, so there's added layers of utility now in the Terra ecosystem. Is payments still a primary kind of gateway, a necessary evil, if you will, maybe like running at a cost or just you have to always kind of have it there? Uh, or is that no longer the focus for you guys? So I, I've sort of over time developed a thesis on why crypto is important. And um, so the way that I think about it is like crypto is... In, yeah, so the reason why I think crypto is interesting is because um, it sort of allows people to uh, migrate to the internet faster than before. And, you know, think about it. So like uh, prior to Web3, people spent most of their time in the physical world and only went to the internet to consume information, talk to people or watch porn. In some cases, all three of these things were the same. And the reason for this is because there's no property rights on the internet. You can't own things. I mean, you still can't own things, right? So uh, for example, um, let's say Mark Cuban and a middle school child would have the same property rights on the internet. You can only, you can own the same LinkedIn page. You can own the same Twitter profile, but it's, it's not possible to construct properties, right? Things that you can own, which meant that people are doing most of their economic activities off chain, uh, you know, off the internet, and then was only spending a limited amount of time on the internet, right? But this can change with Web3 because now you finally have property rights on the internet. So it's a transition from the internet from being communist to capitalist which I think is a really big tectonic change. Hmm. And this allows yeah, you I, to spend the vast majority of your time online, like you guys do, probably. Definitely. I, I would l largely agree with that. The pushback, and, and I describe this too, which is like there's a theory of economic development by Hernando, this guy, economist called Hernando de Soto, says the countries that have developed the fastest are the ones that had property rights. So like the US, for instance, had property rights, had a legal framework to... Property rights allowed you to borrow against your property, gave you credit that spurred innovation and, and, and entrepreneurship and all this stuff. Places like Egypt, no property rights. Difficult to get credit when you don't have property. Now, before, in, the, in your LinkedIn example, people might say, wait a minute. Well, someone kind of owns the LinkedIn as a company has a lot of value. And I said, yes. But I think what you're saying is, which is important, I think, for people to realize is it, it transfers ownership and property to the creator. Um, and, and sure, you could argue that if you upload a picture on Shutterstock and people are like ripping it and copying it, the same way that people were copying music back in the 90s with like Napster and LimeWire, you had to rely on a system in the real world to enforce what is this property, right? You would sue someone and then it's a messy process and any IP lawyer would tell you, yeah, this works because they profit and lawyers always win in this battle, but not so much the artist, not so much the creator. Whereas now you have the ability to create this property that is enforced by math. Yeah. I mean, it feels That's like what, what you're saying. talking about, Doe, is like if I had to summarize what you're saying in one sentence, it's uh, previously, but like pre-Web3, you basically had play was on the internet and work and play was in the physical life. And what Web3 is allowing you to do is actually take that work element because of property mm. rights. And, and now you can actually work on the internet. So is that, I don't know, if it kind yeah. of feels like that's the thesis a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So let me let me actually, I mean, it feels like when I'm looking at this from an outsider, like I I see you, like the entrepreneur and the founder, it feels like there've been there's kind of been three steps, right? Uh, and it's really interesting. I mean, you've, you've built this whole open market operation without a centralized entity. It's, I mean, it's fascinating to watch. It feels like step one was closing, you called it the retail loop, but really it's like the money loop. You closed the money loop in Korea with Chai. So that was like step one. And then you're like, oh wait, we need to do more things because money's not just about spending, it's about saving and investing. So then step two was you had to go out, go out and build the platforms. So you guys built things like, and, and the ecosystem built like Anchor and Mirror and other platforms like that to allow you to save and, and invest and, and obviously spend with Chai. And now we're moving on to stage three, it feels like, where you're like, all right, great. We've got all the all the platforms to let you do things with your money. Now we need to build confidence in the reserves and actually turn this money into like, because uh, money is just, is about the demand, but it's also about the yeah, mentality yeah, of money. Pure social yeah. construct. Yeah, the pure social construct. And now that's what, kind of what you're, it feels like we're moving into step three with like LFG and buying Bitcoin. Is this how you see it in the in these stages or? Yeah, although I, I think with LFG's purchase of Bitcoin, a lot of people understand the economic argument. So why it's good to have an exogenous asset that stabilizes the price of Terra. But um, I think most people are missing the diplomatic argument. And um, the diplomatic argument is as follows. So when Terra was the main stablecoin of the Terra ecosystem, and it, it got pretty big on just being bad, right? Like Terra is the second largest smart contract platform by TVL uh, in crypto. But the ambition isn't to be the largest stablecoin in the Terra ecosystem. It's to be the largest stablecoin, period. We would like to be the decentralized money or some set of decentralized money, we would like that to quote all liquidity in crypto. We would like that to be the main quote currency across all liquidity pools in DeFi. We would like um, you know these decentralized stablecoins to basically allow the rest of the DeFi stack that's built on top to be to be set free. And in order to do that, you need to build confidence for users that are outside of the Terra ecosystem. So if you look at lunatics that are using Terra um, at like USD on Terra. There's no objection that Luna is, is a quality reserve asset. Like if you talk to any Terra user, they'll be like, yeah, don't worry about it. Luna's backing it. But if you talk to an average user on Ethereum, for instance, or on Solana, they don't, they don't share the same confidence uh, for lots of different reasons, you know, right or wrong. But the idea is that in order for us to be able to expand the chains where, you know, natural affinity with Luna is less, then you need neutral reserves that can build user confidence um, in, in UST. And we felt like that asset was Bitcoin. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting observation where, you know, my foregone conclusion around like seeing all the other experiments, because this space of algorithmic stable coins, ambitious, but is littered with, with failed experiments basis, uh, you know, ESD, ESD, um, and look, as you say, it's still very early stage and experimental, but it is felt that you guys have broken out and I would attribute it to utility again. Payments is a big part of that actual non-speculative activity backing and supporting the the reason why you'd want to use this stablecoin other than just I want to play the Ponzonomics. Um, and and I think, you know, in what version and feel free to push back, like in what version does this derail like 
assume, like uh, uh, like removing kind of like ma- ma- political stuff and all this stuff, which could make your life difficult from the consumer standpoint. Like, you know, if like the, the Bank of Thailand, I think, tried to do this, which is anyone in Thailand's using this, we're going to like make your life super difficult, which, by the way, is like an argument that applies not only to a stable coin, it could be for Bitcoin, too. So, like, I want to remove that from the equation because that's always a risk that we climb in this industry although I think diminishing, but what would be like the reasons why, like that you're mostly kind of worried about? Um, you know, I think it's been pretty interesting to see even Bitcoiners like Pomp, for instance, the guy has never tweeted about DeFi ever. I think he missed the boat. He, he's sour about it. Now he's going out and saying, hey, look, people should look at what Terra is doing as embracing kind of the Bitcoin standard. And it's very it's been interesting to observe that even like more diehard Bitcoiners have endorsed you guys or just have been coming out supporting you because all of a sudden you kind of went over that community. So it's a pretty interesting kind of business development strategy you mentioned but i'm curious I mean, that feels like that feels like the most one of by the way santi i just want to add to that that feels like one of the most important things about this lfg the bitcoin buy is like ignoring the benefits of like the peg stability and anti-bank run and things like that this the bitcoin purchase in my mind is so freaking smart because everyone in crypto views bitcoin as like this hard reserve currency right and it's almost non-tribal as a ever Everyone thinks of the, the Bitcoin max is like very tribal, but it's very non-tribal when it comes to the smart contract wars uh, and like the platform wars. Uh, and it feels like you're going, you're, it's very targeted and going after the Bitcoin community because that's a completely untapped area as it really relates to DeFi, right? It's this win-win where all the smart contract L1 communities respect Bitcoin as a reserve asset. Uh, and then you kind of get the Bitcoin community aligned with UST. Uh, and, or even if you get them adopting DeFi, like that's a massive win, not just for Terra and not just for Bitcoin, but the entire space. And I actually think, I mean, Doe, I'm sure you saw the anchor, uh, the uh, the avalanche, uh, the avalanche bridging with Bitcoin. Like, I think this could be the first move in all, all of these L1s are going to integrate with Bitcoin in some so, way in my mind. But So now that you have this attention from the Bitcoin community, Doe, how do you how do you actually ha- start them to use UST? Because they might love, they're like, yeah, this guy, you know, the, the, these guys are going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. Great. Pump my bags. Fine. Great. But how do you, like, what is your strategy into actually bridging and bringing utility, a DeFi ecosystem in Bitcoin that has been non-existent? Well, so I, I think it's a couple of things. So, um, A, I sort of think about the Bitcoin community as the, um, well, like in some some ways, like the um, middle class of crypto in some sense. So what I mean by this isn't that isn't to say that Bitcoiners aren't rich. They're very rich. But um, you you have a lot of people in the Bitcoin community that are very casual users, right? So uh, which means that they hold crypto. They might transact with it. They might have a crypto.com card. They might, you know, give money to their friends or family on holidays as in, in the form of Bitcoin. So they could be like very small time evangelists. I, I felt like, you know, what we're trying to do with this is to build neutrality. We're trying to build, uh, you know, bridges to lots of different ecosystems. And Bitcoin is the only asset in crypto that I feel like that doesn't have controversy, right? So, for example, if you try to build up reserves in Ethereum, for instance, which honestly, I think it could go up more, right? There's higher beta, right? But uh, if you try to take that asset and then bridge it to, let's say, the Solana ecosystem, there is going to be like a decent amount of, you know, uh, political dissent and tribalism there, like rejecting the efficacy of that asset versus soul. Whereas if it's backed by BTC, even if it doesn't move as much, like people are going to, que- nobody's going to question whether Bitcoin is an appropriate asset. 
So as Terra starts to scale its presence across multiple different chains and become a cross-chain asset, we felt like Bitcoin would be, uh, would and should be, you know, holding the majority of the reserve bandwidth. Do you stop a Bitcoin or do you go and do other stuff? I think we should uh, eventually diversify the reserve a little bit and then hold different types of assets. Um, but I, I think it should start from, you know, like a position of strength as uh, LFG and, you know, ter- the Terra Reserves being the largest single wallet holder of Bitcoin. Right. And then I think it can transition to other things. Um, yeah. A lot of what we've seen in DeFi has been this politi- like this political game, right? You see curve wars, you see, you know, the, the power now of governance tokens and influencing certain parameters that, you know, in many ways, like you see this in the real world, you see governing bodies and you see, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and the UN and, and you know, governments, contr- you know, the U.S. government having, you know, a, a privileged position in the global monetary system because everyone adopts the dollar as a reserve asset and, you know, whatever. I'm curious, like, how do you see this? Do you see that like coming more and more to DeFi? And what does that make you guys in terms of where where are we in five years from a DeFi? I mean, I don't want to just limit it to DeFi, but like from an ecosystem perspective, um, like is Terra the most widely used smart contracting platform? What does that mean? If you continue to buy more and more Bitcoin, you're the largest Bitcoin holder, like or one of the largest Bitcoin holders, like you have a pretty interesting and privileged position in this entire industry. Like, do you think about that? Is that something that is on your mind? Like this political politicization of crypto, which hasn't been like, we have tribal, like tribalism, but that's like inherent in human nature, but not like politics. I feel like I think like we've relegated politics and said, no, code is law. But we're now somehow become more politicized. And so I'm curious if you believe that. And if so, kind of what is your role in this entire industry? Well, I don't know if I've done enough soul searching to be able to accurately answer that question. Uh, so are, you, are you the uh, crypto president? I was like, I'm just trying to build out here, man. I'm just trying to build. <laughs> well, I, I mean, so, so one thing that I have a lot of certainty on is that uh, over time, you know, like we are going to stay in a multi-chain world. Uh, and the reason for this is, is because, well, you know, blocks, block space is finite. So that means that similar to how not everybody can live in New York City, there's going to be multiple different, you know, blockchains with different characteristics. And I think over time, they're going to develop different culture, you know, and some applications which are overlapping, but some applications that are unique to each chain. Similar to how there would be different cultural differences uh, when you are spending time in Japan versus you're spending time in Germany. I think you're already starting to see some of those cultural uh, differences pop up in each of the communities uh, in Web3. Now, what I think is going to happen over time is like one of the unanswered questions is whether we're going to live in a multi-chain world versus a cross-chain world, right? So whether, you know, you're going to have different assets that are bridged across different different blockchains, whether there's going to be applications that sit across multiple blockchains. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bet that we're making is that the answer to that is yes, Right. And I think Terra's role in sort of this cross-chain world that we foresee is to be uh, so, uh, so yeah, is to be sort of you know like the cryptocurrency or the stablecoin that sits across multiple different blockchain ecosystems. Yeah. Um, I sort of see my role as you know helping that future happen a little bit faster <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than not. And uh, yeah. besides that, like the Bitcoin purchase is not even my money, so. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So and I want to go back to this with you. I think it's really important. We talk about, so the internet, right? The internet, no one really cares. You know, there's standards in the internet stack, um, HTTPS and all, all these other parts of the stack. And as a user, most people don't think about how it, things work in the background and you just route stuff and packets and that's fine. We are in, in crypto that this distinction of is a user that want, a user comes to a wallet and wants to swap an asset or play a game and then swap an asset. He's really not going to care where this happens, whether it's transacted in Uniswap and Ethereum or Uniswap and an AMM in Solana or whatever in Terra. He's just going to want to get the best execution, best price, whatever. Um, and so in many ways, there's no kind of brand affiliation to the L1, if you will. There are diehard folks today because you have a lot, you know, you have a vested interest in supporting Ethereum or Solana or, or Cosmos or Terra, if you will. But in it's a very early stages, right? We could probably yeah. all agree here that there doesn't feel like there's going to be a lot of brand affiliation to the L1. Perhaps maybe Terra is different because to your point, maybe the payments and if you think about the stablecoin underpinning the L1, because you kind of guys have built a full stack in many ways, which is different than a lot of other kind of more generalized. I, for for a long time, I felt Ethereum was trying to boil the ocean. I'm like, okay, fine. It's really fascinating. You can do smart contracts, but what's a killer use case? And I was looking for it, looking for it. In that journey, I ended up investing in other competing L1s because I said, look, at some point you need to bring utility to, to this and you need to show the world why you're going to use this technology. And the same way that email kind of made the internet like, it was kind of the aha moment. You guys have gone and done the full stack, and and I think it's really interesting. Um, but your point around multi-chain and cross-chain, I think I think is is an interesting point, and I want to go deeper into that because folks like Vitalik say multi-chain, yes, cross-chain, really dangerous. You see wormhole hacks, you see bridges that you're only strong as your weakest chain, and that presents a whole host of issues. Now, the Cosmos architecture, I think, is Tendermint like is pretty interesting, so I want I don't know if you could expand on that a little bit for for folks to understand because I'm sure there's a lot of criticisms out there around kind of the, this multi-chain cross-chain distinction. Yeah, so I I mean I I think the important questions to answer are number one can cross-chain happen and number two why does it need to happen right so answering the first question right you know today bridges are pretty shit. Right. Um, they're usually multi-sigs. Sometimes it's like Guardian. Sometimes it's basically Chainlink. Uh, but that's not to say that secure bridges are not possible. Right. So, uh, for example, I think a good example of this is like um, the the gravity bridge from Cosmos to Ethereum. So the security model model there is that you basically need to trust the validator set of a Cosmos chain to be able to uh, you know move funds to Ethereum and vice versa. So in that case, like in terms of a bridge that connects two different chains together, you just need to trust the security model of the two weaker chains, right? And in that case, um, whether it's multi-chain or cross-chain, it has the same security guarantee. Because if your L1 is going to go down anyway, then in that case, like you might as well trust trust the you know cross-chain bridge, right? Um, and the you know, like, I, I think you can sort of apply similar models to sort of a crushing world. So let's say that if there was a bridge and then the stake of this chain becomes very, very valuable, and then they sort of have a proof of stake method in terms of deciding whether an asset gets moved from a, a chain A to chain B, then in that case, it's totally viable. So for example, if Terra added uh, sort of a, you know, bridging model to its layer one, 
I would say that that's pretty secure as, as far as it goes in proof of stake, given the size of Luna's market cap, right? So I, I think it has the added benefit that if you end up having bridges that have very secure and very distributed stake, and then you use this as a bridging method to move uh, assets from one one bridge to the other, uh, one blockchain to the other, then I, I think it can get very secure. Mm-hmm. So I think back to your analogy of, of urban development, like New York, for instance, if Terra is New York, and there's a lot of other suburbs that want to connect to Terra, um, not all roads are created equal, not all means of transportation are created equal. So maybe the, the main highway from New Jersey to New York is fantastic, pristine concrete. Now, the highway from, I don't know, upstate New York to New York might be absolute crap. And in many ways, like, do you, do you as kind of the hub decide which bridges or which other like chains you want to connect to? And might there be an instance where you wouldn't want to connect to another chain because, you know, you just feel that it's going to maybe not threaten the economic security of your chain because you're stronger but nonetheless, it creates a bad experience for people that are bridging over. And you'd much rather have them not bridge, but just move all together and reside in New York. So right now, uh, Terra is not trying to become sort of a bridging hub, if you will. So we would like to get Terra USD into lots of different chains, but we don't necessarily have an interest in being a hub, if that makes sense. So that has sort of led a lot of bridging protocols, like, for example, Wormhole, Axlar, uh, seller, uh, layer zero to all connect to, you know, Terra and, you know, route UST to different chains. So there's actually massive fragmentation in UST. If you look on Solana, if you look on Avalanche, if you look on Ethereum, there's multiple different versions of UST that are live. And that's indicative of lots of different bridging protocols that are fighting for market share in, in, um, the crossing ecosystem. Um, I don't think our preference matters very much. Uh, I think ultimately there's going to be one or two bridges that win out. Uh, maybe they're focused on a couple of use cases, but I think UST will always be a popular asset to bridge over because uh, I think it's the largest uh, market cap asset that actually makes sense to bridge, right? So for example, USDC or Tether, the issue across multiple chains doesn't make sense to bridge. Uh, it doesn't make sense to bridge over you know, assets like Aave or something like that because like, why would you want to trade Aave on a different chain? Um, unless it's like an L2, then that kind of makes sense. But those have different bridging models. So uh, cross-chain stablecoins, I think a really big case use case for bridges. So I think there's going to be a lot of fragmentation. Uh, we have some ideas in terms of which ones that we think are better, but we're mostly sitting this one out and seeing who wins. So back in February... Uh... Avalanche, the, the Avalanche Dex Pangolin announced that UST was going to be its default stable coins. And I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you decide what to prioritize, right? Because I think there could be crossroads in your decision making when you're deciding, like, do I prioritize Terra, the ecosystem and the blockchain, or do I prioritize UST? And it seems like I'm just trying to read between the lines here. It seems like everything that you've ever done is to make UST more powerful and UST stronger. Uh, and even if that means maybe sometimes sacrificing, like even if that means building up other chains and promoting other chains to make sure that UST is stronger, is the whole, is is like, if you come down to the core of your decision-making, is it all about UST? Is it, is everything, does everything come down to making UST stronger? Even if that means not prioritizing Terra, the ecosystem as much? 
So let me let me tell you a story. So the first time that I ever visited the, um, I I think, um, North America. I, so I think this is the the first time that I went to Canada, for instance. Um, so we went to a shopping mall, and then we were looking at Samsung TVs, and for some reason they were way cheaper than the price point at which you could get them in Korea. So we, uh, so I was shocked. I thought that was an error. I thought it was like a clearance sale or something. But apparently how it works is that because in domestic markets, like users have a large affinity uh, for the Samsung brand, the Hyundai brand, they generally mark up, you know, higher prices in domestic markets. And Korea was very poor back then. Uh, it's it's not so poor now. So it actually made no sense that TVs would sell for higher in the domestic market as versus in North America where users are more affluent. But because they had to compete with other brands, they made it very cheap, basically competing with razor thin margins. Similar for, you know, like Hyundai cars or Kia cars, they were doing exactly the same thing. And in some sense, that's happening to in the Terra ecosystem as well, right? Because, um, you know, usage for UST isn't necessarily incentivized. So, for example, there's no liquidity incentives for UST that is funded by the community pool uh, on DEXs like Astroport or TerraSwap. But at the same time, like the Terra community pool is very active in terms of funding incentives for the adoption of UST on different chains. And... I think that's sort of like the delicate balance that a lot of people, um, you know, play with in terms of how do you increase domestic consumption or keep the loyalty of domestic users as well as growing foreign exports. Um, and across the board, the only thing that, that um, any, um, you know, builder in USD is trying to do is to grow aggregate footprint of USD. Right. So I think there might be balancing acts that need to happen, but at the end of the day, as long as USD gets used, agnostic in terms of which chain it gets used in. Right. I, I love that story about the, about the, uh, about the TV. I think that, yeah, I think that paints the right picture. What, so just maybe a follow-up question to this is, so Terra's main pro obviously Terra has anchor and mirror and all this stuff, but the real product is the stable coin, right? The real product is UST. And so when you think about like TFI, like DeFi on, on Terra, do you see the majority of the future growth of something like SUST? Is that going to be driven by the adoption of protocols and dApps on Terra? Or does the majority of the future like UST usage come from uh, projects outside of Terra? And related to this, like, could you see many of the largest TFI protocols migrating to their own Cosmos SDK at some point down the road? And and like, would you, would this be good? Would you support this or not good or yeah. Yeah. So I, I think ultimately over time, the growth of Terra adoption outside of the Terra ecosystem is going to be larger than internal growth. And the reason for this is because, you know, it, it's, it's just a reality that we live in a multi-chain future. And uh, if all the growth was coming internal to Terra, that would be a narrative violation. But <laughs> more than that, I think there's lots of, very good use cases that are be better suited for other chains uh, like Avalanche, for instance. Um, so it makes sense that the Avalanche ecosystem would see lots of those use cases, whereas on Terra, you would see different types of use cases. But the one invariant that doesn't change is that if those use cases are successful in different chains, Terra can quote them, UST can quote them. So um, I believe that as an overall uh, market share of USD growth, our foreign exports are going to take a bigger share of the pie. But at the same time, I think the Terra blockchain will, will grow very quickly as well. From a use case application perspective, uh, I know you've been pretty vocal around gaming. Um, 
we've seen a lot of interest in stuff like Axie, Takeoff, and GameFi. It's an area that I'm actively investing in heavily because I think it makes, and NFTs, I think it just makes crypto very relatable to a subset of people that may have never, ever wanted to come over. Is that where you see most of the kind of, if, if you were to like extrapolate and say most of the growth is going to come from X pockets, um, which ones are those um, and why? I, I don't want to... I, so I I don't think it's like gaming per se, but do you do you guys remember the time when Sims launched for the first time? Do you, were, were you guys big gamers back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, like, when Sims launched, it was a big deal because before games were about you know killing monsters and you know saying zombies and things like that were you know like you know, hatches or things, so all disgusting, very um, 14, 14 year old teenager streams uh, kind of situation. And then when Sims launched, it was kind of cool. Because when people played it for the first time, is this an actual game? I, I, I do remember a lot of people saying that because it was just about building houses and people walking around and buying furniture and things like that. So it's sort of, I think it was the first time when you started to break down the boundaries of what made a traditional game. So i.e. living in fantasy and then sort of having something that is a closer replica of the real world. Um, and I think... Uh, a lot of the games that are going to come on crypto over the next few years is going to be indicative of this. So I think, so if you take the Axie model, for instance, I actually don't know if, I mean, so it's not sustainable, right? Because you, if you have everybody earning, then who is paying for this earn? So I'm thinking it's probably Chris Dixon, right? Um, but... <laughs> Shout but, out to everyone out there. <laughs> Shout yeah, out to Chris. But, <laughs> yeah, but... Um, at, at the end of the day, what I think what the Axie uh, model did really well is that it woke up all the game developers across the world from AAA game publishers to the smallest indie developer that, like, you know, GameFi is a thing and I need to do something in crypto. And I think that's going to be really interesting. I, I, th- I think gaming is less about play to, play to earn, play and earn. It's more this idea that it, to your point, has inspired this whole category of games, which is the user is in control of his assets back to the digital property. And that becomes really interesting when you know that you could get rugged by World of Warcraft or don't have any value by playing all these games and saying, wait a minute, okay, this all experience that I built in one game. Why can't I take that and it'd be useful across this, the other games that I play? And that's kind of frustrating. Once you see the light, you're like, oh, holy shit. Like, yeah, it's not about play and earn. It's not play to earn. Like, that's just interesting. But again, like Axie as a game is pretty basic. I think it was built at a time where it was just you had limitations. Now I'm seeing a lot of, you know, like, for instance, one of the founders of Counter-Strike is advising this project. Like like guys from like Candy Crush and like serious Web2 gaming builders coming over and saying, I want to build a web three game because it's aligned with who doesn't want to build, give them the choice. Like, why wouldn't you want to build an open source system? Like it's just as easy as that, right? This, this is like the common problem that most people from the outside in start criticizing petty criticisms around certain pieces. I'm like, yo man, like this industry is not perfect. Can you fuck off? And for a minute, just assume the key property here. And it always has been is given the choice, smart people want to build on open source systems because you have the certainty that no one's going to rug you just stop there no matter what like that's that's a takeaway that's it like you don't have to of course there's other things and nuances but if you just stop if you just see it like that i think most people kind of would agree given the choice of a and b you go you go with an open source system like that's it you know what i mean but anyways which i I was gonna go with this sometimes i rant uh in this case (laughs) i though you are a very vocal person and i like that um you are not afraid to speak speak out and call, you know, and voice your opinions. 
How have you felt that this industry has changed from a community perspective over the years? Okay, so I remember this one notable conversation that I had in 2018, I think, with um, an investor. So I met him at a conference, uh, and then we were trying to raise money for Terra back at that time. And um, way, I got to tell you, how old are you? How old are you at the time? You just graduated from Stanford, I guess, or just did. Oh, 2018. So that was, um, so I'm 30 now. So three years ago, 27. Yeah, yeah. 20, 27. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 27 kid. The 20, in his mind, he's probably a 27 year old kid trying to build like a, a another monet- <laughs> monetary <laughs> the future system. Of money. Sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> okay, sure. Fine. But, anyways, yeah. continue. But, yeah, this person was very young as well. And I remember this guy in like very tight, skinny uh, black jeans and, you know, like, leather shoes with heels this thick um and then um so i start telling him about terra and then you know three minutes in he cuts me short and then yo 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 just tell me about the pumpamentals and (laughs) and uh you know that was sort of like the the pitching experience back in the day so maybe we weren't speaking to the right people but a lot of the people that we spoke to uh some were very smart but at the same time there were Lots of uh, very well-known investors and you know people in the industry that um, that that was a little bit shocking to um, somebody that was coming from outside of the industry. So you know, like I went to like private schools and uh, you know things like that, which is um, you, so you so I, I was living a very sheltered life, and then uh, walking into crypto, it kind of felt like you were at a flea market a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's pros and cons of this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the crowd that's active in crypto now is very different. So um, a lot of people looking into crypto just look at, you know, like cats and frogs and things like that, and then say, wow, this industry is really immature. But sort of the intellectual rigor that is backing those anons on Twitter, even if they shit post all the time, is extremely high. So I think what it took for people to survive, you know, three years of the bear market and uh, still succeed and uh, become well-recognized in the industry I would say the intellectual caliber and, you know, like behind all the ship posts and ratios and things like that, uh, the, mm-hmm. the sort of the quality uh, of the people that are jumping into the industry has gone up a lot. Would you say that's the case because it's, it can be a very adversarial environment, both uh, deploying code, you know, it's a trustless system. So you just assume that any vulnerability is going to be exploited. Uh, but also from a community standpoint, we're very tribal. Uh, everything's out in the open. And so a lot of people look at this industry and say, wait a minute, it's all the scams and money grabbing activity. I'm like, well, you just see it more visibly because it's, you know, a transparent system. This happens in the real world. It's not that humans are any different. Perhaps the 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 optimist in, in us could say, well, if you know that you're if you're interacting in a system that is more transparent, then you're more likely to behave in a better way, in a more collective way. But, you know, sometimes we can see some pretty nasty stuff going on in crypto. I'm curious, like, your role, do you do you ever feel a need to, like, compromise or sympathize with other people that have been very critical of what you've built over the years? Or do you just assume, look, there's always going to be a very vocal minority that is going to be always be critical, always be trying to poke holes at what you're doing? And that's just part of the game that makes you stronger and you know, fine. Like if you survive in a very adversarial environment, which you have over the years, then that's sort of a true test of you can actually make it. You can actually, you can actually survive long-term. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a really good question. So <laughs> the, the really fu- funny thing about arguing with people on Twitter are, is that when you meet them in real life, 
like you there's like no mention of that whatsoever and people turn into the nicest human beings and um <laughs> maybe they're afraid you're gonna just slap them you know <laughs> no, 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 go, no. Go, go will smith on them and uh <laughs> right i mean so uh, a lot of people that interact with me on twitter just assume i'm a very aggressive person but um you know if you know me in real life i'm actually like very quiet um and um uh so you know like people have personas um that they assume and dealing with their communities and talking to people on the internet. And um, I, so most of the people that I've met on Twitter um, and, you know, like argued with them or just like made fun of each other, if you meet them a real person, um, you know, it's quiet guys, you can, you can just have a beer or wine with them. And it's, it's, um, it's hard to tell. So uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years is to not take things personally because it's just part of the game, right? And um, in some sense, by having people that are criticizing you all the time, and especially at some scale, there's going to be a lot of those for lots of different reasons. It's also beneficial because it helps the community stay informed and it holds you to account as well. So I think over time, Terra was able to decentralize a lot because of the critiques and feedback that we got from people that you know weren't wishing a lot of success for us. And so I think there are positive elements to things that happen when people shit about you. Um, and, uh, you just can't take it too personally. I, it feels like, I mean, similar to most things in life, the best thing is also the worst thing. Right. And so one of the things that's interesting about crypto, I mean, there's no, you look at most fortune 500 CEOs, they've got like a hundred followers on Twitter, right? No, they're, they're not waking up on Twitter and people are chirping them. It doesn't really matter. Uh, with crypto, you, I mean, I wake up every single day and there's ridiculous messages in the DMS. Doe, you're a smart man. You've closed your DMS. I noticed, but, um, but but that's also one of the best things, right? I also wake up and in the in in our Blockworks Discord, there's suggestions on how to improve Blockworks every single day. So it's almost like one of the best things is is also the worst things. Um, Do I want to kind of pivot a little bit and talk about just this LFG and the Bitcoin buy? If you're open to talking about that for a second, can you just get into a, a little more of like what do you how much how much Bitcoin are you guys buying? How are you buying it? Or actually, sorry. Importantly, I think it's I think it's also important to understand just like the seniorage model, just like what is the seniorage model? What are the profits used for? How does that work? And then that can tie into uh, LFG. Got it. So. So let me talk about what we plan to be doing in the long term, and then I think we can transition to what, what we're doing immediately. So um, over time, the idea is pretty simple. So for every unit of Terra stablecoin that's issued, the previous model was we would burn a dollar's worth of Luna. Um, and anybody in the world could do this. So anybody could submit a dollar's worth of Luna to the protocol and swap it uh, for one UST. And that would effectively burn the Luna and mint the UST. Um, now, the model that is being discussed right now, and then there's a write-up on this on our main research forum at Money. The idea is that for every Luna that a user submits to mint UST, let's say 60% of that is gonna get burned, and 40% of that is going to get reserved uh, and sent to the community pool so that later it can be used to acquire Bitcoin. So it's as if like as new UST is being minted, uh, about some percentage of that, uh, of that seniorage is going to go to market buying Bitcoin over an extended period of time. So you, you can sort of align UST success uh, with Bitcoin success over the long term because as UST grows, the size of that Bitcoin reserve is going to scale up over time. So 10 billion that, that um, is being floated around by a lot of media outlets is um, just some you know ballpark figure in, to indicate the scale of how big this thing can get to. Mm. Can I 
just make sure I fully understand that because I'm not sure. sure I fully understand it. It seems like, I mean, first off, massive proposal, right, to, to update kind of how this works. It seems like this will make a depegging really uh, tough, like a sustained depegging even more impossible or just like tough beyond like maybe 99 cents or something like that because the primary mechanism for UST redemptions moves entirely on chain instead of through a centralized exchange. Is that, am I understanding it kind of, sort of, or not really? Yeah, I mean, you could do that decentralized redemption before as well. So uh, you could, so right now uh, you, you can swap in, you can trade in one USD and then get back a dollar's worth of Luna. Now, the, the reason why this is better for the ecosystem because now users have a choice. They can either trade in UST and get Luna or they can redeem it against Bitcoin. So um, a lot of the death spiral events that um, you know worries people about what happens if Luna price falls, mm-hmm. along with a lot of people wanting to redeem UST, uh, is lessened because you have um, a bigger collateral pool in the form of Bitcoin that is sort of front stopping um, yeah, you just people's have a, redemptions. The, the name of the game is diversification here, right? Where right. You have you know okay probabilistically well, and creating more demand for the for the reserve is it. You're creating more demand for the reserve asset, right? Like in a death spiral, maybe people don't want Luna, like people lose faith in Luna. And so they don't want to redeem it actually for Luna as well. But in now, everyone always wants Bitcoin. So as the price of Bitcoin goes down, you can always, you you know that there's a backstop of Bitcoin. Is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah. I guess like it would, it would, it's kind of like a buffer, right? Because if, if in one scenario, extreme scenario, everyone wants to redeem for Bitcoin, you exhaust that pool. But it gives you, it mitigates, it gives you like some time to maybe put in some measures in place to, to, to stop this death spiral, right? Um, it's not to say that, look, that's, I mean, though, would you agree? A death spiral is always possible. Like this is the name of money is a social construct. When you understand that there is always a version, no matter what is underpinning this, that trust is absolutely breached. And the consensus is this has zero value. Let's move. And let's go quickly and things spiral out of control. Like that's just, of course, some are more fragile than others. And so you say, okay, what can I do to, to buffer this, to mitigate that eventuality, to, to harden the social kind of perception of what I'm, I, I, of, of what is this, whether it be a diamond, whether it be gold, a a pen, like whatever. Right. And so that was, I think. Is that like a fair character? Is that how you see it? Like it's, you're never going to like solve the idea that money is a social construct. At the end of the day, it's a perception that people have. Um, Some, there was some reaction from the community that said, well, wait a minute. They maybe are admitting defeat or fault in this design of the system. So therefore they've gone out and bought some Bitcoin and has weakened the initial kind of sacrosanct premise of a seniorage model kind of algorithmic stablecoin or whatever. Like, do you sympathize with that view? Do you feel that that's like, you know, uh, do, have you heard this criticism before? Or, or <laughs> do most people look at what you've done and, and would you say it's like a very positive, overwhelming positive kind of support for this Bitcoin purchase as, a, as holding it in, as part of the reserve? An algorithmic stablecoin is obviously going to have weaker economic guarantees at the peg than will a leverage-backed or fiat-backed model will, right? Uh, So the fiat-backed model is going to have crit risk because the deposits could disappear overnight. 
or like maybe somebody's been stealing funds in the background or something like that. But anyways, yeah. So like an algorithmic model is going to be able to, uh, is not going to be as able to withstand, like, let's say a 90% redemption all in one day. Whereas uh, a fully fiat-backed model should be able to do that. And um, similar for leverage-backed models, I think they will be more efficient at backing it. So, but the the point is that in terms of our options base, even if the economic guarantee is, is, is not as strong, it's definitely a lot more useful and a lot more decentralized. So um, I think if the options are, if our goal is to build a decentralized currency that can scale to meet the needs of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, in that case, building an algorithmic stablecoin is the only option that's available. So that's why I think Terra is interesting. And I think it's really about like in this gradient of if this is the only option that we're going to go forward, what, what are some of the ways in which you can make this model as secure as possible? And I think adding a neutral reserve in the form of Bitcoin is a, a pretty, pretty good strategic move. Yeah. Because you're not compromising the most important thing, which is right. decentralization. Now, right. I remember... In Black Thursday, Black Thursday, um, we were Maker felt really fragile back then, and so we implemented uh, and we proposed at the time as a Parify adding USDC as collateral. It was in an attempt to bring more stability and utility to the system. But again, you compromised on that, and there was a lot of criticism from the community, which you know is well founded. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just you make a trade-off. Like everything mostly in DeFi has had to make this trade-off, which is it is easier to use a centralized stablecoin. Um, and, and and the market speaks for itself. You know, like if you look at the stablecoins in circulation, most of them today continue to be centralized. Now, there is a version of that where you, you kind of really learn the hard way uh, of how it's like flood insurance. Until you are flooded, you kind of don't understand uh, that you should have bought this insurance uh, until you live in a regime like Venezuela where fiat, like the state, like hyperinflationary environment, you don't kind of value, see the, the value. It's actually been like pretty impressive to see you guys not compromise on, on that at least uh, and really push towards decentralization. I want to ask you maybe um, uh, just a more open-ended question, which is if you were to rebuild Terra today from scratch, what would you do differently? I mean, there's probably a million things that you can think of, but like, like maybe the, the more common ones, it's like, God, if I were to go back, like I would definitely not do this. Well, so I, I think some of the things that I think we would have uh, tried to do earlier on is to build some applications of Terra uh, in different chains. So instead of building, you know, all the um, smart contracts on top of the Terra blockchain to build some, some things on some of the other chains. So to build some of that early affinity um, with, you know, a cross-chain use case before we build up the domestic economy. So I think that will be one of it. Um, so we did try doing that with Mirror. So, uh, you know, for example, M Assets traded on not just on TerraSwap when it first launched, but it also went on Uniswap. Uh, I think about uh, maybe 5 10% of the initial distribution went to uni holders uh, back in the day. But um, I, I think, you know, striking a more balanced approach in the beginning, um, you know, could have been, you know, a good strategy. If you diversify the reserve holdings outside of just Bitcoin and you start adding like ETH and maybe Sol and things like that, I mean, that that would be almost doing what you're talking about, which is getting into and like supporting other ecosystems in a little bit of a way. Yeah, um, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Can you just fill us in? Uh, 
on all right so we so we've got the seniorage model i want to um i'm probably going to in the weeds here i've just i'm really curious i want to end with this big question of like how are you actually buying this much bitcoin but i want to make sure i understand how this actually works before asking the question so my understanding is like when ust is minted luna's burned that burnt luna is called seniorage and then after columbus 5 all the seniorage that's been burned uh has been burned uh, previously, a portion was sent to the community pool and the staking rewards, but now a percentage of the seniorage is actually used to build these Bitcoin reserves. Um, mm. If that's so, I think I think I understand it correctly. Can you just get into like how much Bitcoin you guys are actually buying? How much you've already bought so far? So we've set aside about three billion dollars worth of funds in LFT to bootstrap this reserve in the beginning. <clears throat> um, so I think we've bought about maybe 1.3 billion worth. So that leaves about 1.7 billion dollars worth to go. So this is not through the seniors mechanism. This is just, um, you know, Tapworm Labs, we donated money to LFG so that um, LFG board of directors can make decisions to uh, do the Bitcoin purchase. And then the, and then after we implement this on-chain mechanism, it's just going to be an on-chain buy as users meant USD. What are the, what are the behind the scenes that maybe folks don't understand of like how complicated this actually is. Like, I, I mean, when I want to buy, you know, a hundred bucks of Bitcoin, you go on your app and you buy, you buy some Bitcoin, right? What does it look like to actually buy a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin? Is this all you need like big OTC players? Like, what does this actually look like? How quickly can you buy this? How do you buy Bitcoin in this much size? Well, so you got to remember Bitcoin has about, I think $20 billion worth of turnover uh, every day. So yeah. um, buying a hundred, 150 million is actually not, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. So you could spit up execution across uh, several different OTC desks. You can even just do it with one OTC desk. And just um, just, just the, um, on the amount of liquidity that's in the order books, it's not going to make a big impact. But I think what it might be starting to make an impact a little bit is because, um, you know, nobody declares that they're going to buy this much Bitcoin. Um, and generally, you don't have single entities that are buying this much Bitcoin. So a lot of people are asking the question, why would you tell people to get worse execution on your Bitcoin purchases, right? And um, the answer to that is because... Of, it's a little bit of marketing, right? The social, con like the, the psychological effect of, of what does that do to the price of Terra and support like the overall ecosystem, like it's like marketing dollars, right? Yeah, so I, I, well, I mean, so I think that's a nice side effect, but I think the more important thing is this isn't really like my money. So I, I think that's what people get confused by. So once I donate it, it's not my money anymore. So I'm not making a personal decision to buy Bitcoin. We have a board of directors that include a lot of firms in crypto like Delphi and Jump. And so if we pass a board decision to buy Bitcoin, all these people are going to know about it anyway. So uh, yeah. we might as well declare to the community that, look, we're going to be doing this thing in order to benefit the Terra ecosystem and the users of USD. And uh, we felt like being transparent about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the central banks, do this, like, the, like you know, the Fed goes out and says, hey, we're going to do open market operations. Like, they're very explicit of what they're going to do. In many ways, like, that's what you're doing. Also, Sailor was very open. I mean, second probably to Sailor, like, Sailor's perhaps the only other person that I can think of that has been this explicit about his ambitions to go out and acquire a bunch of Bitcoin. Everyone knew this. Like, you just were looking at the order books. You were looking at Coinbase activity. You're like, okay, here we go. Sailor effect. And, <laughs> and it was like, it's kind of easy to deconstruct that if you just look on chain. So, uh, yeah. I feel like there's a, a war to gobble up all the Bitcoin. You've got Grayscale versus Sailor versus Doe, and uh, the battle is on. <laughs> uh, um, we'll, we'll win for sure. 
<laughs> I love that. I love that. Doe, how involved are you with, um, you know, there's this big proposal the other day or like earlier this month, I think it was with like, uh, Arco was making this big proposal on anchor. When you see proposals like that, uh, I think who was the other firm firm is either polychain or paradigm. I forget who it was, but there's, there's these, polychain. yeah, polychain. Okay. Uh, when you see these proposals, are you like, you obviously have a take on them. You obviously have a belief on what the, like what is the right answer for like, what is the best thing for UST here? How involved do you actually get though? Are you like, I know what should happen for UST, but like, I'm going to stay out of this. Or are you like, or, or do you actually try to influence uh, the decision-making of, of these things? Um, so on each of the apps, like Anchor, I stay involved at a very high level. So um, I don't really get involved with like the product teams or to set strategy for how Anchor should grow. Um, I do have a take on some of the proposals that are coming out. And like, like one of my biggest objections with DeFi, the way that it's evolving is that it's getting more and more complicated. And I think it's because uh, a lot of founders feel that the surface area of the simple things have already been taken. So they like to compete by, you know, creating arcane mechanisms that are a little bit more difficult for newcomers to compete with. And um, a lot of the new uh, proposals that are coming to things like Anchor is like, for example, like require people to hold ANC or like, B, A, and C, you know, uh, three, three types of mechanisms like protocol and liquidity and things like that. And I think where Anchor like really shined across, you know, the rest of DeFi was the simplicity, right? Like all you need to do is to deposit stablecoin. You just need to deposit the types of assets that you're really comfortable with, like Luna, Atoms, um, ETH. And then like you can earn a yield on it as you're borrowing, right? So um, it was pretty apparent to me that the proposal wasn't going to get a ton of support from the community. Now, what the main takeaway was is that a lot there's a lot of, you know, um, holder demand uh, from people that are holding ANC for a there to be better tokenomics for ANC so that the token price can better reflect the success of the protocol. So right now it's just getting farmed to death. And number two, there's some sentiment that the 20% yield that Anchor is offering is not sustainable. Right? Uh, I have takes on them, but um, these. You know, this sentiment by the community is definitely something that needs to be be addressed over the coming months. Maybe let me ask you a a different side of it, which is: Does it really matter to you if you have hundreds of apps in the ecosystem? Not 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 today, but mm-hmm. in, a, in a version like Anchor, is it Anchor and and if it's been farmed to death? Well, obviously not, not, you can mitigate that. You can create better incentives for people to hold this token and, you know, might impact the yield and all this stuff and create more sustainable. <clears throat> it felt, it's felt to me like most of DeFi has just sort of been very short term focused and hasn't really placed a lot of emphasis in, in the sustainability of customer acquisition and retention. <clears throat> it's a very competitive landscape. You launch a, what is an interesting liquidity mining program with interesting yields, and then you get one up by another protocol. Um, and these these protocols have short lives and attention spans of this mercenary capital. But you know, back to your original point, which is your focus is to increase the demand uh, of UST and bring value back to the Luna ecosystem. Like, hey, is there a part of you that says, oh, "Well, I don't really care"? You know, like you know, Anchor at the end of the day is attracting and bringing more set of users that perhaps are yield farming in Ethereum. They come over to Terra. You hope that you retain three, ten, three, five, six out of ten that may stop using Anchor, but are going to go to another protocol, but at least stay in the Terra ecosystem. 
and it's kind of like marketing, like sales and marketing dollars, a traditional company. Is that like a way to see it? I mean, I, I think it's not a very like useful, like, I think there are ways to improve a lot of these protocols, but like, is there a version where ter- anchor doesn't really take off is just like a short kind of thing where people came and yield farmed and then moved on, but at least stayed in Terra. Like, is that like a, is that something that you think about or, or, or are you very much focused on fixing part of the, part of the anchor protocol that, you know, it's not fully optimized. So uh, I think you're right in the sense that Terra could be successful while anchor is not, but, um, you know, like the one takeaway that I've gotten over, you know, building Terra over the last few years is that um, you build communities by trying to make as many people as successful as possible. That, that's it. That, that's the only thing that matters. Uh, and in order to do that, if a lot of UST users happen to be holding ANC, I want to make sure that these people succeed. And uh, the, the, the one way to do that is to pay attention to their feedback and problems. This, this like 20% rate on, on Anchor Doe makes it, you could argue that it makes it kind of difficult for other apps to be competitive. Um, this like 20% hurdle rate, does that, how do you see the 20% rate evolving over time? And like, what, what do you think that the anchor earn rate should be over the longer term? I, I think over time, the anchor rate is going to be an average of staking rewards across multiple different blockchains, uh, plus some risk premium that people have over leverage. So I feel like, um, let's say the averaging stake, staking ratio is like nine, 9% uh, across different chains. And then if you add like, let's say 2% borrowing costs on top of that, that's what the anchor rate will be. But right now the 20% exists because it's highly subsidized, right? Um, and just from the perspective of the Terra ecosystem, if you're helping to bring in a ton of people to onboard into USD for the first time, and uh, the cost of capital on that is 20% per annum for such a, such a young currency, I don't think that's crazy at all. And if you look at the pace by which the active wallets are accumulating on on, by interacting with Anchor Protocol versus like how fast KVL is increasing, the number of wallets are increasing pretty quickly as well. It's like an insane amount of growth over the last year. And I think in terms of active usership, it is one of the most uh, frequently used DeFi apps on the planet, which is really cool. It does make it very difficult for other DeFi apps on Terra to gain adoption because they need to qual- uh, they, they need to compete with the 20% yield. So that's why uh, you know some of the apps like Nexus use AUST instead of UST. So that's yield-bearing UST stablecoin that is locked up in Anchor. And then that allows them to build additional yields on top of the the 19%. So that's what helps them get really competitive. We only have a couple minutes left here. I just want to, I want to actually kind of zoom out a little bit and just kind of talk about the rest of this year. Um, It feels like maybe three to four years ago, the big focus of your years, right? Trying to think in years and not months and quarters here is, was, was building Chai and building, like closing that payments loop, like we talked about. And then that evolved and, and like your focus for the year, the you know, 12 to 24 months became, okay, how do I build this ecosystem? How do I build applications to further advance the money, the UST? So you, we built things like Anchor and Mirror and things like that. What are you, what is your, just, what is your like overarching goal for the next, you know, 12 to 24 months when you think about it in that kind of context? So some of the big moves that uh, we've been making uh, is in sort of, you know, so largely at, at TFL, we have three, three, three teams um, in, in the front office. So the first is, uh, it's called the domestic team. So this team is in charge of, um, you know, helping developers build interesting apps on top of Terra. 
And then we have the exports team, and this is supposed to be growing, helping to grow uh, USTs, cross-chain use cases. And then the third is moonshots, uh, which is sort of like, um, you know, like a skunkworks team that works on very interesting things. So I, I think we're going to be making big moves in the domestic and the exports team, but I have some interesting ideas on what to do with moonshots. So uh, basically, what if there was an app, and it's an AR app, it could be like Snapchat, and then every night all across the world, you can point it towards the moon. And then this AR app would overlay the Luna logo on top. And then if you press it, you have a random chance to get some free tokens or NFTs or what have you. And this could initially be funded by the Terra community pool. So the net effect that you achieve with this is that you sort of build an association uh, for hundreds of millions of people across the world to point their phones to the nice sky every night, look at the moon and think about Terra. And then over time, even though initially this could be funded by, let's say, the Terra community pool, right? Uh, over time, this can become a really valuable distribution platform for every app that's building on Terra. So, for example, you, like for example, NFT projects can use it as a distribution platform, segmenting by geography or user profile to give out some of your assets. Like gaming uh, projects could do the same thing. DeFi apps. Um, so, it's um, it's actually if you think about it, it's kind of like Worldcoin. Um, except instead of giving away a coin that doesn't have value, you grow it as a distribution platform for lots of different crypto projects. So, um, I think, um, what are you most excited about in crypto that is not related to Terra on what you guys are doing? Santiago, the fact that you didn't even respond to the idea of building an app that you point at the moon and you get Terra airdrop to you is amazing to me. Do your market. Well, I mean, genius. he knows. I, I, I love it. it. I'll leave it in that. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, it's so obvious that it's like there's nothing for me to contribute other than, uh, yeah, I'll point my phone up to the moon for yeah, sure. Got it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But I am curious, though, like what are the things that you're excited about uh, happening in, in the broader industry? So I think what the what, what Yuga Labs did with Board Apes is really interesting. And it's not because they like acquired, you know, like those, you know, crypto punks or they um, like minted a coin or something like that. But I think the future of NFTs is sort of upending the IP publishing model. So uh, before with uh, traditional works of fiction, you had the canonical story first. So you needed to write an interesting story. And over time, you develop the IP. And then later, you sort of have things that you can own from the IP. Like, let's say, Harry's Wand or like the Hogwarts Castle Lego and, and things like that. But with NFTs, it's kind of interesting because you've upended the model um, in that you sort of have the goods that are sold first. And then you, you leave it up to the community to come up with their own provenance and lore and fiction over time. Now, the problem is that most NFTs just stop at the selling the goods part. And that lore and provenance and fiction never actually develops. But um, I think there's, you know, really interesting things that are coming out from the community, whereby you try to align incentives around that sort of IP creation and curation. Uh, and, you know, I, I can think of really interesting models where you include this um, community incentive structure at, at the time of the NFT mint. So, for example, like some portion of the NFTs are reserved for people that want to do interesting things on top of them. And then you can add, mm -hmm. add in things like governance to allocate NFTs to people that actually develop and curate this IP. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it feels like I've always felt that a lot of DeFi protocols should be using, or any protocol should be using NFTs as a go-to-market strategy, as a way to incentivize people because they have so much emotional cachet. Like, okay, it's fine to yield farm. It's fine to like, you know, it's fun and, you know, making money is an 
a core kind of thing that humans like to do. But like, if you layer on top of that, the social layer of NFTs is super powerful. The community aspect of it, um, and and of course, I'm sure that you guys are thinking about that in the in the moon, like in the the Skunk Works uh, Moonshots uh, team. So I'm excited to see what you guys come out and build. Um, Doe, it's been fantastic to have you. I, I want to leave with with one thing, which is, um, you know, I, I, I can't I can't think of perhaps few protocols that have are, are this exciting, but also have like like it typically is are not as widely known or there's controversy around it or there's, you know, common criticisms to anyone out there listening, like maybe just parting thoughts, uh, things that um, you want to just people to take away from this episode um and and, and why do we leave it at that I, I i should have researched what your key audience is but i'm assuming that it has a lot of people that are interested in web3 thinking about joining um and w- what i wanted to say is that looking from the outside in it could seem like um you know there's a lot of redundant innovation and things like that that are being built on crypto but i i think um you know every day it gets more exciting to build really cool apps so if you're thinking about building um, you know, a Web3 application or company, reach out. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's on Terra. would love to help uh, any future builder, you know, get acclimated and get it getting started as quickly as possible. That's amazing. Jason, anything else to add? No, man. This has been an awesome conversation. I think uh, Santi and I are rooting for you. And uh, I think a lot of folks in the community are rooting for you. So, uh, yeah, man, best of luck with everything. And yeah, thanks for coming on Empire. Thank you so much. Thanks, so it's great having you on, man.